Bethel. So good to see you all on this wonderful Sunday morning, the Lord's Day that we can worship our risen Lord and Savior. We are starting a new series today that will lead us up to Easter, and we're going to look at some of the events um, on Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem and, and the events surrounding Jerusalem prior to the Passion Week. And so today we're starting this new series called Resurrection. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been accused of not listening? Yeah, not listening. You know, I, I spend more than half my work week on conference calls. And one of the things on a conference call, you call on someone and you hear them say something to the effect of, oh, I'm sorry you cut out. Could you repeat that question? That means you weren't listening means you were multitasking, I'm guilty of it, responding to an email while you're on a conference call. Maybe you, as a parent, have said this, you did not listen to me. I told you to do this, and you did that. Listen to the words coming out of my mouth. And if you have middle school or high schoolers, you've said that before. Maybe husbands, your wives have said, you did not li are you listening to me? to which you are watching the sports game, and you're like, no, I'm not listening to you. I'm watching the game. Come on. So we, we've all been accused of not listening at some point in our lives. You know, Matthew explains that Jesus spoke to them in parables so that those who weren't genuinely listening would miss what he was saying. Those who were not listening with their hearts, who were not genuinely trying to understand what Jesus meant, would miss what he was saying. And that's what's happening in the parables that we're going to look at today. If you hear him say multiple times throughout Scripture, if you have ears to hear, there's a lot of wisdom to gain if you have ears to hear. But if you are not listening, the meaning will go right over you. Matthew chapter 25 is where we will be today, and this passage of Scripture contains three parables. And we're going to press in mostly on the third one, the parable of the sheep and the goats, but all three make a similar point. And to be honest with you, this is a very, very difficult passage to speak on this morning. I don't think I've ever spoken on Matthew chapter 25. Jesus tells all three of these parables right before the crucifixion. He's doing teaching in and around the temple area. Jesus knows he's about to die, after which he will ascend to heaven and his disciples will see him no more. But through these three parables, he is encouraging them by telling them about the day he will return. This time, not as a baby in a, man, in a manger, but as a conquering king coming to judge all men. And the point of these three parables is that they should be prepared for that. They should be prepared for his second coming. And each one of these three parables, it builds on the one before. So let me quickly summarize them before we read our passage. The first parable, maybe you're familiar and you've read these before, is about the ten maidens who were supposed to be a part of a big marriage party but they do not know when they are going to be picked up. Five of them are wise. Jesus says they pack their bags and keep their lamps filled with oil 
so that whenever the bridegroom comes, they're ready to go. However, five are foolish. And they think, you know what? He probably won't come tonight. I'm tired. I'm not going to go out and get any oil for the lamp tonight. I'm just going to stay in and Netflix and Pop-Tarts and just chill tonight. So they sat at home, unprepared. Sure enough, that very night the master came. He took the ones who were packed and ready and left the ones who were not. So the point is that Jesus wants us to be ready when he comes back and not be sitting around idle. That's the first parable in Matthew chapter 25. So what does this look like, us not being idle? That transitions into parable number two. The second parable explains that. It's about a master who went on a trip and left various amounts of money with his three servants. To one he gave five talents, the other he gave two, and the third he gave one. And each talent was around $15,000 in today's currency. So we're dealing with substantial amounts of money. Think of it, he was giving like a money manager. Well, the first two of them invest the money and get a return, but the third was scared he'd lose money in the market, so he buried it and waited for the master to come back. When the master returned, he rewarded the two that invested their talent and multiplied them, but the one who buried his talent out of fear, he called them wicked. In other words, what it means to be ready is busy leveraging what God has given you for the furtherance of his kingdom. He has given you a certain amount of time, talents, and treasure for use in his kingdom, and he's going to hold you responsible for what he has given you. But we still might be asking, what does this look like in action? What does it actually look like to invest your talents in the kingdom of God? Well, that's why Jesus tells the third parable, which is where we will park today. In this parable, Jesus gets at the essence of what it means to be a follower in this day and age. Let me ask you a question. Let me consider before we dive in. How would you define the essence of being a Christian? Have you ever thought about that question? How would you define the essence of being a Christian? What determines whether you really are or not? For many Christians, it seems to be mainly believing the right things and obeying the important moral laws. That's the way some people would define it. But is it that really? Francis Chan, in his book, Crazy Love, he said, just to read the Bible, attend church, Avoid big sins. Is this really the passionate, wholehearted life of a disciple Jesus was calling us to? It's a great question. The third parable explains how Jesus defines a Christian. It is the culmination of the other two parables, showing us what it looks like to live with your lamp trimmed, your bags packed, and what it looks like to invest your talents in a way that pleases the master. Let's read Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In Jesus' time, this sheep from the goats would have been a very 
very visible illustration when we were in Israel just a couple of weeks ago. As we were driving through the wilderness, we saw the Bedouins with their sheep on the side of the mountainside. And you would see goats sometimes intermingled with those sheep there on the side of the mountain. And in Jesus' time, sheep were everywhere. All over the hills of Bethlehem, there were sheep grazing. So the people understood what it meant for a shepherd to separate the sheep from the goats. You know, first notice the authoritative position Jesus had put himself in. This is, in this passage, no longer a man of sorrows. Born in a manger, meek and lowly, riding a donkey. This is the Son of Man in glory, sitting on a throne of the universe with authority over heaven and hell. That is how he is speaking in this passage. Verse 33. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, which is the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it, To one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So who is Jesus talking about here in this passage? Some want to equate these people with all of the poor people everywhere. And certainly God wants us to care for all the poor. But specifically here in this parable, he's talking about poor Christians. These brothers and sisters of mine is the way he refers to them. Whenever Jesus uses that language, of family in Matthew, he's always talking about his followers, followers of Christ. Furthermore, that term least of these is common one in Matthew, and Jesus always uses that, refer, that term, the least of these, to refer to his disciples. So it's pretty clear here he's specifically talking about poor, suffering Christians. And before we move on, let's take a minute to th- let that sink in what Jesus is saying. When you do kindness to one of Jesus' brethren in need, Jesus considers it as done to him. Let that sink in for just a moment. And when you ignore one of his followers in need, he takes that personal. Do something for one of his children is like doing something for him. Verse 41. And then he will say to those on the left, this is the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Thirsty. 
or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you. They're like saying, Jesus, we don't remember when you were, were naked. You know, Lord, I, I kind of feel like I would remember that because, you know, I would give my, my, the clothes off my back if, if you, Jesus, were, were naked. I don't remember that. And hungry? Uh, Jesus, I don't, you know, we would have given you food. Uh, you know, Jesus, when, when were you in prison? What, are, what were you in there for? Couldn't you just have, you know, walked through the, you know, the walls kind of thing and gotten yourself out? Like, you can see that the people are confused here with his, his teaching. Verse 45, let's keep going here. And then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I think through these three parables, we have three kind of glaring questions we have to ask as we work through this passage of Scripture. I think the glaring question that is standing out here is, who will go to heaven? This parable is more than just a little alarming to me because it shows us that not everyone who considers themselves to be a Christian will be in heaven. The sheep and the goats in this parable, what's interesting is they all seem to recognize the lordship of Jesus. So they all seem to consider themselves to be Christians. No one is like, whoa, who are you? I don't know you, Jesus. Where's Buddha? I don't even think there was a God. We don't see anybody in this passage like that. Everyone seems to believe that they are a Christian. All of the maidens in the first parable consider themselves a friend of the bridegroom. All of the servants in the parable of the talents consider themselves to be an employee of the master. This judgment does not separate Christians from the world. It separates genuine Christians from imposters. And make no mistake about it, we're not dealing here with simply a loss of reward. We are talking about heaven and hell. Jesus ends the parable of the maidens by saying in verse 10, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. He ends the account of the three servants with talents by saying, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. And he cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then to the goats, the last parable, he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Man, I don't think Jesus could get any clearer than what he got here in Matthew chapter 25. We're talking about eternal significance here between heaven and hell. There are a lot of people in church who think that they are Christians because they show up on Sunday morning, but they are tragically mistaken. You say, well, that... What exactly is the difference between those who go to heaven and hell? The only difference in the sheep and the goats is what they did or did not do. 
whether or not they were actively, tangibly engaged in the mission of God, generous toward the poor, particularly those as poor believers. Apart from that, all other religious activity is useless. James, the brother of Jesus, says it this way in James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphan and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Who are the orphan and widows? The same ones Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 25. The least of these that we must be ministering to. Two signs you're a Christian. You love the people God loves, and you're busy rooting out the sin in your life, according to James 1.27. You say, well, doesn't the Bible teach, Pastor Robert, that salvation is by faith alone through grace alone? Isn't saying it's determined by how we respond to those poor brothers and sisters, isn't that a, a contradiction to that statement that we believe in salvation by faith alone through grace alone? No, it is not. What it is showing you is that real faith, the faith that saves you is more than just an intellectual assent. It's more than just church attendance. Saving faith, it transforms you from the inside out. You demonstrate your saving faith by your engagement in the mission of God. Because you can't truly be transformed on the inside and not let it be shown on the outside by the way that you interact with the world around you. James, Jesus' half-brother, would say it this way. Faith without works is dead. In other words, intellectual beliefs without a change of heart that results in good works is like a body with no breath in it. This is where it helps to reflect on the fact that the ones Jesus specifically identifies with are Christians who are suffering because of their commitment to the message. It's because of their commitment to the mission of God because that is why they are hungry, imprisoned, and needy. He's saying if you believe this message at all, you're going to be moved to action by the stories of those who are suffering for their commitment to this message. If you really believe my gospel, how can you not be moved by the suffering of those who are suffering because of their commitment to my message? The sign of genuine saving faith is a commitment to the people of God and the mission of God. I'm going to say that again. The sign of genuine saving faith is a passionate commitment to the people of God and the mission of God. You see, there are two ways to tell what you believe. What your mouth says and what your life says. One of those two is more reliable than the other. One of them never lies. If what your life says you believe differs from what your mouth says you believe, God always accepts the testimony of your life. The question is not, what does your mouth say, but what does your life say? So that's question number one, who will go to heaven? Question number two, is it possible to be a lukewarm Christian? If you're not familiar with church, this concept of a lukewarm Christian is found in Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus criticized the church for being full of believers who were neither hot nor cold. 
For those of you that are coffee drinkers, you either like your coffee hot or you like it ice cold. Lukewarm coffee is no good. I'm not a coffee drinker, but I'm surrounded by them. They don't like lukewarm coffee. You need iced coffee or hot, or hot coffee. Lukewarm Christians are Christians who sit in churches, believe the message, but are not really sold out to Jesus and not meaningfully engaged in the mission. It is these kind of Christians that Jesus is describing in these three parables. You see, the maidens consider them a friend of the bridegroom, but they don't live in a way anticipating his return. They're only thinking about how to make things comfortable in the present moment, not how to be faithful in their assignment to God. The wicked servant considers himself an employee of the master, but he's never offered his talents without reserve for the kingdom. Lukewarm Christians are Christians who sit in churches but are not sold out to the mission of God. What bothered me this week as I read these parables is that there is no middle ground. No middle ground. You either committed to the mission, you're all in as we just finished this series, get in the game. You're either all in on the mission of God or you're not. You're either a sheep or a goat and that puts the lukewarm Christian in a very precarious position. Are you lukewarm in your commitment to the mission of God? Francis Chan in his book Crazy Love gives the profile of a lukewarm Christian, which you could say comes straight from these parables. These are people that are all fairly regular in church, but, and I'm going to steal some quotes from his book, he says, lukewarm people don't really need to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty. Of sin. God is a useful fire escape they employ, not a God they worship. Lukewarm people are moved by stories of people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not do radical things themselves. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expects of all of his followers. Lukewarm people equate their partial Partially sanitized lives with holiness. But here's the truth. They could not be more wrong because Jesus did not call us to live a life of sanitation. He called us to discipleship. To be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you live a sanitized life, but that you get your hands dirty by dealing with people in, in, in broken lives. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with neighbors, co-workers, or friends. Why? Because they're not sold out to the mission of God. They don't want to be rejected, nor do they want to make people uncomfortable by take, talking about what our world says are private issues today. No, it's not a private faith. That's because they just don't believe the message that strongly. Like the great Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, either you are a missionary or you're an imposter. You're a missionary or you're an imposter. The risk involved in the kingdom is great. There is always risk. Lukewarm people give God the leftovers, not their first and their best. Don't want to give you the wrong idea. We all struggle in seasons we are lukewarm. I, as your pastor, Full transparency, I have struggled 
and lukewarm seasons of my life. But the fundamental question is, when you became a Christian, did it include a surrender to get engaged in the mission of God? Or was your Christianity more of a belief thing, a have a Jesus save you from hell type of thing, or a basic morality and avoid the big sense thing, or have a personally have you personally got engaged in the mission of God, offering your time, talent, and treasure as a blank check for the furtherance of the kingdom of God? An old Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane told his congregation concerning this passage. He said, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in the great day. I fear there will be many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with his lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. But man, what's a quote? The sign of genuine saving faith is a commitment to God, the people of God, and the mission of God. So the third question for today is, which category Will you find yourself in when Christ returns? The sheep or the goats? There are two ways to tell what you believe. What your mouth says and what your life says. One of them is more reliable than the other. The question is not what your mouth says you believe, but what does your life say? The Bible teaches that justification is, comes by faith alone. That means you trust Christ as your Savior, but that you demonstrate that trust in him and your love for him through a life spent loving those that Jesus loves. Only those who do this will find themselves with the sheep, that final judgment. Where will you be? Where will you be? Let's pray.